0: Oh, amen, and good morning to you, Harvest family. Great to be with you this morning. My name is Jordan Corris. For those of you who I have not yet met, and I'm the youth director here at Harvest, and excited to be able to open up God's Word with you this morning. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to chapter 2, verse 4, is where we will be in our time in God's Word together. So I hope you've got your Bibles ready, and you are turning there. And as you do so, I'm sure that I don't even really need to mention it, because You're probably all aware already, because I know how much everybody loves history, right? That this past May actually marked a pretty momentous anniversary of an important occasion. May, 80 years ago, Sir Winston Churchill was appointed Prime Minister of the Country of England. As they were on the brink of engaging fully in World War II... Churchill stepped in to lead the country. And he established an emergency wartime coalition government in order for the country to survive the years of war that would follow. It was not a time for the advancement of personal matters. It wasn't a time for political maneuvers. This was a time for the country to band together against the common enemy that they shared for the sake of the people of England, of Europe, and the world. In his first address to the House of Commons on May 13th, 1940, Churchill said, Come then, let us go forward together with our united strength. See, that kind of unity is really only seen in our world in times Of great trouble. In fact, we saw little glimpses of it four months ago with the beginning of the worldwide pandemic we find ourselves in. We saw it in the messages of support and the heartfelt care that went forward for frontline workers. We saw it in the messages and the care for countries and individuals across the globe who suffered. But almost as fast as that unity came, It dissipated as the reality of the restrictions came home to roost in people's lives. Which really shouldn't be surprising to us, though, because inherent in every individual is a desire to do what they deem as best for themselves. Even this kind of crisis-based unity is fleeting. Here today and gone tomorrow in our world as was the case for Sir Winston Churchill. As one of the foremost and most recognized and influential leaders of the world in the World War II era, he was quickly cast aside after the war was over, losing in a landslide election as politics and the public returned to their differences. But the unity that God calls his church to is completely different. Which is clearly seen from what Paul calls the Philippian church to in the verses that we will spend our time in this morning. It is a unity that results in the change of every aspect of an individual's life, from their purpose and direction to the way they experience the world and engage with other individuals. It's a unity that ought to transcend situation and circumstance. As the church that is committed to honoring Jesus Christ should be a church united. And while we could say that there is certainly much good and honoring to God going on in our church right now, we would be naive at best to think that we have arrived in any area of this. So as we look to the word of God and think corporately this morning, that doesn't absolve us from the individual responsibility that we all have to cultivate and pursue God-honoring unity in whatever local church we find ourselves a part of. So this morning, would we consider our perspective on these things? Would we seek the Lord and his desire for what unity ought to look like in the church? And would we ask him to reveal to us blind spots in our own lives where we have missed the mark on these things? Let's see what it is his word has to say to us from Philippians 1, 27 to chapter 2, verse 4. These are God's words to us this morning. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's go to the Lord before we unpack this together. Father, we are grateful for your word and we're grateful for the truth found there. Lord, we recognize that in these days, the manifestation of the body of Christ has looked a little different. It's resulted in some changes for us and how we do things but nevertheless the mandate you have given to your church remains the same and so father as we look to understand what it is that unity that is honoring to you would look like we pray father that you would teach and instruct us from your word you would encourage us in the areas where we have this and god that you would convict us and challenge us in the areas we don't Father, would you rise up in us a love for you and a unity of spirit and of mind in our church that will advance the gospel, that will glorify your name, and that will do the purposes for which you have set out for it to do. Be glorified and honored in this time as we spend time in your word now. Speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, a church... Committed to honoring Christ is united in, see this first, purpose, founded on the truth. Now, for context's sake, it's important for us to understand that the city of Philippi, where the church that Paul is writing to was located, was a Roman colony in the country of Greece. A majority of its population actually had military experience. And so, as a colony of the ruling empire, Philippians. Ex- it, Enjoyed special status and privilege that came with their colonization and with the large population of ex-military citizens. And so as such, and in a masterful representation of knowing your audience, the Apostle Paul uses words and phrases in these verses that the Philippians would have understood given their background and experience. In fact, in verse 27, the Greek phrase for let your manner of life was political in nature and referred to how citizens of a particular country ought to conduct themselves. So for the Philippians, this would have brought to mind for them the deep sense of pride that they had in being a Roman colony and how they ought to be living their lives consistent with being Roman citizens even while they were away from their motherland. You see, what the Apostle Paul proposes in verse 27 is a different allegiance. A different sense of pride that the believers at Philippi should have. Not toward Rome, not toward Caesar, but that they ought to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. So as those who had received the good news of the gospel and responded to it in faith, they then have a higher citizenship than that of this earth. They are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so their conduct must reflect that. George Caird, in his commentary, wrote that they are Christ's colony. He is their emperor, and they must live up to his claims so what would a life lived worthily for the gospel of Christ look like? Well, Paul goes on to say it, that they ought to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. They are to have unity of purpose. Their spirits and minds, both the inside and out, knit together. All that they are founded on the truth, working as one for the preservation and the advancement of the gospel-based faith that they shared. Again, even the imagery Paul uses in this verse is astonishing, as the Greek verb for standing firm was a military metaphor, perfect for a colony made up of ex-militants that were a part of a particularly Effective and efficient fighting style back then. What was commonly referred to as the phalanx formation, a common style of formation for hand-to-hand combat, would require soldiers to work as one cohesive unit. They would all hold their shields in their left hand, overlapping to protect the person to their left, and extend their spears, remaining in formation in order to break the lines of the enemy. It required Complete cooperation and the soldiers to move together as one. As any break in the formation would spell potential doom for the unit. They stood side by side. Contending as one against their enemy. And you see the church that has that. Its collective heart and soul. And mind centered on the gospel and its advancement. Will then have the strength to withstand any attack. As the apostle Paul goes on to say in verse 28. Take a look. He calls the Philippians to not be frightened in anything by your opponents. As this is a clear sign to them of their destruction. But of your salvation and that from God. See the unity and steadfastness that comes from a group of believers standing shoulder to shoulder and under the banner of the gospel produces courage and courage to not even be intimidated when opposition arises. So you see that unity of purpose results then in the attacks of unbelievers and those opposed to the gospel being thwarted. The truth of the gospel preserved and presented to them by those who hold courageously and stand side by side and stand firm on the sure foundation of their lives. And then the endurance of the saints is evidence to those who oppose the truth of the destruction that awaits them if they do not repent. The second result. Is that the church would be strengthened by the power of God at work in the withstanding of opposition. In the confidence believers have to face it. And in the resulting assurance of God's evident presence and power there. Proving the faith to be genuine. As the unity of the church stands in their refusal to fear opposition. Because listen, when somebody belongs to God, when the church belongs to God, there is nothing to fear. Confidence and courage comes when a church is united in purpose. So then who are the group of soldiers that you're standing with? Who is your phalanx formation? Maybe it's your small group. Maybe it's the ministry team that you serve alongside. For me, as I went through all of this, my youth leadership team came to mind. A fantastic, steadfast, committed group of people who love your kids and who are committed to caring for them and protecting them and being a part of their spiritual growth. People who would take time to train themselves up so that they would be effective in their service For the Lord, united under the vision that God has given to us. See, here at Harvest, we understand that our purpose is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19. In the spirit of the Great Commandment, Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40. We desire to love God and love people through the unashamed adoration unapologetic preaching unafraid witness and unceasing prayer characteristics of our lives that is what impacts every decision made every vision we have for the future and is the heartbeat of every ministry and if this is your church that is your purpose as well this is why we do things like hold harvest essentials it's why we ask you to become members because in signing on the dotted line you formally declare that this is my church these are my people and the purpose that god has put on the hearts of these people is mine as well so listen if you're not a member of whatever local church that you are affiliated with doesn't even have to be this one If you are of the mindset of, I mean, why would I need to formally sign on to that? I'm here already, aren't I? Or if you don't want to be under the authority of your local church elders, I want to challenge that perspective in you based on what God's word says right here. Because there is great worth in formally saying, this is my church. I am in for the purpose that God has has put on the hearts of the people here. Listen, in saying that, I recognize that the church has caused a lot of hurt and pain for a lot of people. Some of you, I know, have experienced that personally because you've told me. But regardless of the failings of churches or church leaders in the past or in the future, because the church is not perfect... Uniting yourself with a church committed to honoring Christ is a Bible-prescribed, God-honoring, joy-producing thing. We can see here that this is Paul's heart for the Philippians. That they be committed to this. That they be committed to this at all times. Whether I come and see you, Paul says, or am absent. Whether we're meeting via live stream or in person whether we're face-to-face or in Zoom rooms. The unity of purpose that must exist in the church of Jesus Christ, founded on the truth of the gospel, must be present at all times, carefully guarded and watched over to ensure that it remains founded on the truth. Secondly, see this. The church must be united in experience, suffering for the sake of the gospel building off of what he said already the apostle paul says in verse 29 for it has been granted to you that for the sake of christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake now the wording of this verse is important here because there's a common misconception about god's grace that we can slip into that paul completely contradicts here Certainly, we understand God's grace evident in the faith that we have and the salvation that we have received from him, the deliverance from the penalty of sin and eternity in hell. We understand God's grace in the blessings that we receive on a daily basis, God's common grace exercised in the life that we have, the breath in our lungs, in the rising of the sun and its setting. So many more we could say. But what Paul is saying here is that the suffering that we experience in this life as a result of our faith is all also an outpouring of God's grace. This would have been a totally mind-blowing moment for some of the Philippians who were raised in a religious system that was completely focused on the pursuit of happiness. I make my sacrifice to my small g God so that they can be pleased with me and give me good things was the mindset back then. For them to consider that I would suffer for my God. And that the suffering would actually be evidence of that God's grace and approval on my life. And in fact, that it would be considered a great privilege for me to be able to endure the suffering for the sake of my God. That would have been a complete paradigm shift for them. But what Paul says here is consistent with what Jesus himself told us on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, for followers of Jesus, there is unity in the suffering that we experience in this life. Both the general suffering that all people experience as a result of sin, but also in the unique suffering that comes in our lives because of our identification with Jesus Christ which is the opposition that Paul speaks of in the common experience that he had with the Philippians, as he says in verse 30, telling them that they are engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. If you're taking notes, jot this reference down, Acts chapter 16. I would encourage you to take a look at that at some point at some point in time in this week, because it details for us the... Account of how the church at Philippi got started. And let's just say it was anything but a smooth church plant. Okay, the things that the Philippians were dealing with as their church got started weren't like, you know, having to set up and tear down church or where they were going to meet on a Sunday. Riots, jail time, earthquakes, opposition from all sides. I mean, it was trial by fire for the Philippian believers. See, that's where the words of Paul here to them would have no doubt been of great comfort for them. Because in hearing these things, they recognized that their suffering was for a purpose. I've got a few things here. Suffering for the sake of Christ brings us closer to him. As we begin to further identify with Jesus and the sufferings that he faced for us, It increases the fellowship that we have with him. And as our love for him grows, so we also grow in our appreciation for what it is that he endured for us. Suffering also brings the assurance of salvation. 1 Peter 4.14 If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Suffering is an opportunity for the advancement of the gospel, as Paul has already stated here. The witness that we bear to Christ and the courage with which we endure suffering is evidence to others of the truth. Suffering also promises a reward, as Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. And as Paul says in Romans eight eighteen. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. that you're going through right now? The pain you're experiencing? Not even worth comparing with the glory that is to come. Finally, suffering is all for the glory of God as He is magnified all the more by those who remain faithful to Him even in the midst of opposition, persecution, or suffering in general. See, in understanding that we are to suffer for the sake of Christ and be united in that, it's important that we establish that suffering is not good. It is a result of sin and evil in this world. However, the suffering that exists in the lives of believers as a result of their faith is a privilege to endure. Because it is an an indication of genuine faith. So you know something is right with your faith when you are being opposed. And to withstand that opposition or persecution, as Paul has already stated, is evidence of faith at work in us. See, there is an inherent unity in the suffering that we experience in this world. Everyone faces difficulty as a result of sin. Sickness. Death. Pain, loss, all are a reality of living in a world that is marred by evil. C.S. Lewis knew the stings of pain and suffering as just a few short years into his marriage, his wife, who had struggled with cancer in the past, succumbed to the illness, illness and passed away. In his book, The Problem of Pain, Lewis wrote, God whispers in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Then we understand that there is an additional suffering that comes on top of that for the followers of Jesus. Manifest in the opposition that we faced from others, in the persecution that many across the world experience, and that we may too soon face. Because you see, people don't like what we have to say. The gospel of Jesus is divisive, offensive, repulsive, and polarizing in our world today. So opposition shouldn't be suspected, it should be expected. But unity comes in recognizing that in all of this, we're in it together. And that our suffering is not meaningless. It is meant to draw us closer to God. To understand in greater depth His goodness, His strength, His love for us. It is to be used by Him for His glorious purposes. And in that In our shared experience, there is hope. Third, see this. The church is to be united in direction. Striving for the same thing. As we move into chapter 2, we see a list of attributes that ought to define the Christian life. The word if that you see there is not one that brings doubt as to whether or not these things were happening in the Philippian church. But instead, Paul is using them to appeal to the experience that they have had already as believers. As he does so, he reminds them of what it is that they have through the gospel that is at work within them. First, encouragement and comfort in in Christ and his love for his people. Because Paul's already established that they are suffering for the sake of Christ and the sake of the good news of who he is and what he's done in this world. Their encouragement and comfort ought to come from him as well as they grow in deeper fellowship and love for him. Second, we see any participation in the spirit, which may be better, more literally translated to fellowship in the spirit. Referring to the working of the Holy Spirit to produce fellowship and mutual love within the Christian community. And lastly, any affection and sympathy, which is re- reference to the tenderness and compassion that ought to characterize relationships in the Christian church. So because these things are available to them and are already occurring, Paul urges them, verse 2, to complete his joy inferring for us that his joy his supernatural delight in the plans purposes and people of god was lacking because of in theory the absence of these next attributes check check them out verse two by being of the same mind having the same love being in full accord and of one mind see the desire that paul has for them is to be like-minded That their pursuits and priorities would be in line first with Christ and then with one another. David Garland said it well in his commentary on Philippians. The Philippians thinking is to be governed by the example they have in Christ. By his mindset. It means their thinking, motivation, feelings and actions are directed by the same thing. Christ's loving sacrifice for others. Unity in direction is what Paul is urging them to, both in life and in ministry, striving to glorify God by committing to living with a Christ-like mindset. That is what God desires for his church to be. That is what will complete Paul's joy as the Philippians commit to this. And see, this is where the difference lies in committing to a church honoring to Jesus Christ and being a part of some social club group or team. Because a gathered group of God-loving, Holy Spirit-fueled, Bible-believing Christians united for their purpose and passion is different than being a part of a rotary club or a sports, a sports team. Evident for us in what Jesus prayed for his people in the high priestly prayer of John chapter 17. I do not ask for these only, Jesus said, speaking of the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, speaking to us, all Christians. And loved them even as you loved me. See the unity that Christ desires in his church. is the same as the unity that he had with his father. The oneness that ought to exist in the church committed to honoring Jesus Christ. Ought to be deeply rooted in the fact that we are to be in Christ as much as the father is in the son. And in our mutual pursuit of him, we are united together. Not because we have some sort of political agenda, not to puff our own ego, not even to have some sort of deeper human connection. But out of our collective passion for pursuing Jesus Christ. That is where our unity in direction ought to come from. You see, unity and direction is important, but more important is ensuring that we're going the right way. Fifty years ago, churches across the southern states were united in how they decided to treat African Americans. Churches throughout history have been united on publicly shaming those caught in sin. Churches today are unified on either extreme of the same sex question, whether it be abandoning what the Bible says about it and accepting it, or brutally condemning anybody who would have the boldness to say that they're struggling with this. A careful consideration of all things. Based on what God's word says and the mind of Christ is necessary to ensure that the direction that we take is the right one. This is why, Harvest Family, our elders embarked on assessing every area of the DNA that we have as a church, reviewing the hundred something line items that they had because. The unity in direction that we ought to have needs to be grounded in the truth of scripture. Founded firmly on the example Christ set for us. So that we remain true to the calling place on our lives and remain a faithful witness to the truth. So that the world may know who Jesus is and the love of the father who sent him. So back to that Garland quote for a minute. Let's think personally about this. What direction are your thoughts, feelings, actions, and motivations taking you? Are your thoughts regularly transformed by a love and knowledge of God? Does he come to mind in your life throughout the day? Or are your thoughts a place you run to for sinful pleasure? Are you ruled by your feelings? Allowing how you feel about things to dictate. And triumph over the truth that God seeks to proclaim to you. Are your actions consistent with what you claim to believe? Or are you blindly following after the passions of this world? Are you motivated by the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf? Or pursuing your own desires? Ensuring that we are moving in the right direction is important, not just corporately, but individually. In our families, in our homes, in our small groups. What direction are we taking? Which brings us to the final area of unity that the church must have, and that is in humility. Considering others first. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, this is where Christian unity really hits the mark. This is where a church committed to honoring Jesus Christ really stands out. It's in the genuine, heartfelt care that we have for others based completely on the example that Christ has given for us. Greater love has no one than this, Jesus said, that someone lay down his life for his friends. A thought Paul expands on in Romans chapter 5, for one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. You see, Roman culture and perspective back in the time of Paul's writing was governed by an idea called dignitas, translated for us, dignity. It was the pursuit of greater individual glory based on a number of things. Genealogy, achievements, property ownership, overall wealth, intelligence, physical ability, pride and reputation. And anything done apart from the advancement of any of these areas was seen as weak. The only reason that you would attach yourself to someone else would be for your own personal gain. This would be the historical equivalent of keeping up with the Joneses. Look after your own things. Do good for yourself Look for advantage were the mantras of the culture back then. Humility was seen as weak. Something for lesser people. Those who were insignificant. But as Christians, an appropriate view of understanding that we are image bearers of God. Is that we are to see fellow image bearers of God as those worthy of care and respect, which means we humbly seek their welfare and seek their well being over our own. Not I should mention, forsaking our own needs, as Paul here says, that we are to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. But you see, the problem comes when we are entirely focused on our own needs and wants. So much so that we forsake the needs and wants of others or intentionally turn a blind eye to them. There is no room in the church for rivalry Or the pursuit of one's own personal agenda. It is the pursuit of Christ's agenda. As we are one in him. Who exemplified this perfectly for us. In surrendering his own glory. To come down to this earth. And die a death we deserved. So that we could be reconciled to him. Charles Spurgeon put it so well. Unless I can leave off loving Christ, I cannot cease loving those who love him. This kind of love, this kind of humble service toward others should transcend any boundaries of race, language, gender, age, and should extend to everyone who would find forgiveness at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. Who are we to challenge who Jesus would save by determining in our own mind whether or not someone is lovable or not worth our energy or efforts in serving? So my question for you is, who is the hardest to love for you? Who do you find hardest to love? Maybe it's an ex or the homeless, the drug addict, those who would identify as LGBTQ or plus. Maybe for you, it's somebody whose skin color is different than you, whose gender is different or is younger or older than you. The fact that christ died for us while we were still sinners in our willful rebellion of him is enough for us to realize that we have no place in determining who we extend the love of christ to that person you have in your mind right now that's the person that christ has called you to love that's the person that god has called you to humbly serve We are to care for the needs and desires of others, regardless of any made-up boundaries. because The church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be a beautiful tapestry of people of all sorts of differences. Unified in the truth that they are God's people. Sons and daughters of the Most High brought near to Him by the blood of Jesus Christ. This type of unity in purpose, experience, direction, and humility is so often seen by many as binding and limiting, when in reality, it's just the opposite. A church committed to honoring Christ by being united in these things brings freedom. Freedom to be real. To open yourself up to others and let them into your life. Your sin struggles, your fear and anxieties, your worries and insecurities. It frees you to be authentic, transparent and vulnerable with other people. See, a proper understanding of the unity that ought to exist in the church is to recognize that we are for one another, working together to draw nearer to Christ. Not using our short, the shortcomings of others to vault ourselves higher or breaking trust by disclosing the secrets of those closest to us for our own personal enjoyment. But holding one another up as we walk with Christ. This kind of unity brings freedom from the power of sin. One of the great joys of Christian unity is the accountability and mutual benefit of the relationships that we have with one another. As we engage in this daily struggle against sin, the brothers and sisters that we have in Christ ought to be the crutch that we lean on when we are the weakest. The prayers, the phone calls, the gathering together in the moments that we are weak, all of it can be used by God to gain victory over sin in our lives when we are united in purpose and pursuit. Third, unity brings freedom to enjoy differences. In a world that tells us to be this way or that, the freedom in the church is to exercise the differences that we have for the benefit and benefit of the church. Differences in this world often cultivate fear. But the love that we have for Christ and then the love that we have therefore for others. Means that we celebrate the differences that we have. Suspicion. Suspicion of those who are different than us or preferential treatment given toward one because they look this way or that or talk this way or that has absolutely no place in the church of Christ. Racism, sexism, ageism, ableism, prejudice or partiality of any kind has no place here. Listen now. Down to even the harmless Jokes or comments that we may make to one another. No place. Lastly, Christ honoring unity brings freedom to grow. In that we recognize that none of us have made it. In the church church of Jesus Christ, there must be grace and freedom given to one another. To grow in our knowledge of, pursuit of, and love for him. As the youth director of this church, let me speak for a moment on behalf of the young people that we have here. What those young in their faith need from those older in their faith is to allow them to grow in their understanding of what faith is and what that looks like in their lives by giving them opportunities to serve or to learn without being afraid of being wrong or judgment if they miss the mark. Creating and cultivating a safe place for our youth or those new in their faith regardless of their age to serve and explore the gifts and passions that God has given them within the boundaries of what Scripture says, or to ask questions, or to seek the truth, will keep them around. There is a partnership that must exist in the church between people of all generations. As much as it is fun to poke fun at millennials, should be no place for that. Older generations love and invest in the growth of younger generations. It's not that they will be the church after you are done with it, but it is that they are the church right now. In the same way that you are. So recognize that they have a perspective that is different than yours and appreciate that they have something to bring to the body of Christ. On the other side of that, younger generations, recognize that older generations are a part of the church right now. And they have a perspective that is different than yours. Appreciate that they have something to offer to you And to the church. See the unity that. Ought to exist in a church that is committed to honoring Jesus Christ. Should be a light in this world. It should be. A joy igniting experience for us. What goes on within. The body of Christ in the love that we have for one another and the humility with with which we seek to serve one another should stand out in this world. While the message that we have is dividing light and life to those who who accept it and the stench of death to that to those who would oppose. Our unity should be inviting. And should be consistent with the truth that we proclaim. A church that is committed to honoring Jesus Christ is a church united in purpose, in experience, in direction, and in humility. And each of us have a part to play in that. So will you commit To these things. For the advancement of the gospel in your life. And in the life of others. Will you find. The joy available. To you. In the unity. Of faith. Let me pray for us. God we thank you for your living and active word. We thank you for the love you have shown to us so often and God we thank you for the grace and the patience with which you pour out in our lives as we seek to understand what it is that you've called us to we know God that the church is supposed to be united we know God that we are supposed to be pursuing the same things surrendering ourselves and our desires for the benefit of others God, it's hard. So would you do a mighty work in each of our lives right now to tear down the walls around our hearts toward those who are hardest to love. Would you humble us now, Father, before the mission and mandate that we have been called to, to recognize that we have a part to play in this, that we would be encouraging and admonishing others to pursue what it is that you have called us to. May this church, Harvest Bible Chapel here in Barrie, Ontario, shine as a light in a divided and divisive world. Would the unity found here and the mutual love for one another draw others in, Give us a chance, Father, to be able to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. His broken body and shed blood and his glorious resurrection to those who truly need it. So make it so in this church, Father, I pray. Do a work in each of our lives to call us in whatever areas we may be falling short in this. And make the change in us, Lord, we pray thank you for your love and your grace which makes this available. Thank you for the truth of your word that we hold in our hands. May it continue to challenge and convict and change us so we may be able to bring you even more measures of glory in this life until we see you face to face. And to that end, we do say, come soon, Lord Jesus. It's in his perfect name that we pray. All God's people said,